I'm reading beginning of verse 19 when you find it. John's Gospel, chapter 20. When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus therefore said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, Jesus again, his disciples, after eight days again, his disciples were inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and be not unbelieving but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have believed, you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. There are many who said that he was the greatest baseball player ever to play the game. He could run and field, he could hit and throw, and he incarnated those intangible qualities that we call leadership. But he bet on baseball, and he was banished from the sport. And according to the strictest interpretations of of qualification for the Baseball Hall of Fame, he is thereby disqualified for all time. No, I'm not talking about Pete Rose. I'm talking about Shoeless Joe Jackson. In the 1920s, this superstar led his team, the Chicago White Sox, to the World Series. And the scandal broke that he and some of his players had bet on games and money had been passed. And so he was banished from baseball. And so great was the scandal that the Chicago White Sox were referred to for years after that as the Chicago Black Sox. Now that scandal has faded from memory. Probably most of you have never heard of Shoeless Joe Jackson unless you saw the movie Field of Dreams. But there is an image that is etched upon our culture that cannot be forgotten. It's the portrait of a little boy standing at the exit ramp of Old Comiskey Park with a baseball bat slung over his shoulders. And he sees his hero coming and as he gets close to him, 
tears well up in his eyes and spill out on his face, and he says, Say it ain't so, Joe. Say it ain't so. And that event crystallizes the human disillusionment when everything or everybody we believe in fails us. That crystallizes the human disillusionment when the person or the things we most believe fail us or we think they fail us. 450 years ago, a man experienced just such a disillusionment. Martin Luther was a monk in, a, in an Augustinian monastery, a secluded monastery in Germany. And one afternoon, he was summoned to the quarters of the Father Superior, the head of the order. And when he went to the quarters, not knowing what he was going to find, he, he heard this wonderful announcement that he and another brother of the order had been chosen to represent that order at a special convocation in the holy city itself. Now Martin Luther was literally ecstatic. He had to pinch himself to see if he was dreaming. I mean, when he walked out of that meeting, he was walking on cloud nine. He could never have dreamed in his wildest dreams that he would ever go to the seat of St. Peter, to the Vatican itself. Now to understand the, the elation that he felt, you have to understand what the church taught. The church taught that the way to make most sure of your salvation, you need to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land or to some shrine with lots of relics of the saints. But top on the list was to make a pilgrimage to the Vatican itself. And Martin Luther knew that, that a pilgrimage to the Vatican constituted a holy sacrament whereby he would acquire indulgences that he could assign to the dead. And he knew that he would get these indulgences and assign them to the dead and they'd be transferred from purgatory immediately into heaven. And later on he wrote that was the only time that he wished his father and mother were dead. Because he knew that if they were dead and they were in purgatory, he could assign these indulgences to them and they would be transferred immediately into heaven. But because they were alive, he dedicated the pilgrimage to his deceased grandfather on the day that he and his brother began to approach the seven hills of, of Rome, his heart, he said, nearly burst in his breast. Think of it. This is the place where Paul was martyred, where Peter was crucified upside down. What a place. But it wasn't long until he began to be disappointed, as was traditional. When monks visited the city for the first time, they were assigned to read the mass in various parts of the city and they were attended by local priests. And when Martin Luther read the Mass, he did so deliberately and carefully and seriously. And these local priests would stand beside him and whisper in Italian, hurry up, man, hurry up. And he found that he could say, that they could say five or six Masses in the time it took him to do one. And he realized that it had become a mechanical thing to them for money. And the scandalous word began to come to him, rumors that these priests were involved with prostitutes, both male and female, and it broke his heart. Then came the day for which he had prepared, most prepared, his soul. He was going to the church in the Vatican and climbed the penitential stairs. 
that every monk would do for the first time he visited the Vatican. And when he got, the way they did it, they would climb one step and they would repeat part of the rosary and they'd climb another step and say part of the rosary till they got to the top. And when he got to the stairs to get the full impact, he hiked up his robe and bared his knees and climbed the stairs on his knees, burying his face in the cold stone, crying out to God for, for, for forgiveness and mercy and begging for the assurance that his soul so desperately needed. When he got to the top of the stairs, he gathered himself, stood up, and looked around. And when he saw that he was alone, he wrote in his memoirs, I said aloud, who knows if it is true? Oh, man, what a question. Who knows if it's true? Now this it he was referring to is this body of truth that is in the Gospels of Jesus Christ, who knows if it's true? And we all understand that Thomas and Luther are not the only people who have come in life to some disillusionment and have questioned the reality of the it. The question that needs an answer this morning is this. What do you do when your faith falters and is threatened and something threatens your belief. What do you do when you come to that period in life of disillusionment and, and you cry out, is it really true? I want to try to help us find the answer to that. Before we do it, I need to lay aside with you some popular misconceptions. A popular misconception is this, that, that there is a perfect faith that is that is a misconception. Now there are some people who tend to believe that if you have any doubt, if you question God on anything, if you have any doubt at all, then you must not be saved or at least your faith must be very weak and inferior. It's a misconception. Most of us can more identify with the father who brought his son to Jesus to be healed and Jesus said all things are possible if you believe and the man said the father said I believe that's faith help my unbelief that's doubt for with everybody I think faith always contains a mixture of doubt there's no such thing as a perfect faith I'm thinking this morning of the father of the faith Abraham so faithful was he and so obedient in faith was he that he went out not knowing where he was going and he was willing even to offer his son on an altar as a sacrifice. But this man did not have a perfect faith. He fell and he got up and he fell and he got up like the rest of us. And when a famine came in the land, instead of trusting God for provision, he went down to Egypt to find food. And when he learned that Pharaoh was quite a ladies' man, he came to his own wife and said, Honey, this is a Tidwell translation, Honey, if Pharaoh takes a shine to you, I sure would appreciate it if you'd tell him that you're my sister. Now, I wouldn't consider that a perfect faith. What I'm trying to say is that even Abraham's faith was imperfect. Second misconception. It's the misconception that there is such a thing as absolute knowledge or absolute proof about anything. Hear me now. Absolute knowledge and absolute proof is not something any one of us 
possesses or will ever possess. You say, well, what about science? Let me tell you something. All of science is based upon assumptions for which there is no proof. Blaise Pascal said it like this. A Christian is a person who bets his life that Jesus is right. There is no absolute proof. Third misconception. It's the belief that what you apprehend with the senses is the most believable evidence that you have. That's a misconception. That's what Thomas was having a problem with. He wanted to see it with his eyes and feel it with his hands, assuming thereby that with the senses he could grasp the truth, believing that what he could grasp with the senses was the most viable and provable evidence. It is not. How far can the eye see? The scientists say this matter is made of atoms. Show me some. A person who, to whom seeing is believing is a person who lives in a narrow world. How far can the eye see? I mean, nobody has ever seen electricity or energy or gravity. And nobody has ever held in his hands an idea or put his finger on a thought. Not only is it living in too narrow a world to, to depend upon the senses or to, to, to whom sin, seeing is believing, it's a deceptive world as well. For sight tells us the sky is blue, but that's an optical illusion. And seeing tells us that the earth is flat, we know it isn't, and that the sun rises, but we know it doesn't. For it is a misconception to believe that what you see with your eyes and touch with your hands is the greater evidence. Now, what do you do, watch me, what do you do when faith falters? I suggest three things. First of all, you, you consider the alternative. Now, what is the alternative to God is not? I mean, either God is or God is not. Either Jesus is true or Jesus is not. Now, if I lay aside that Jesus is not and God is not, if I lay that over here and I, and I go for that, follow that out to its logical conclusion. Are you ready for that? If I believe this morning that God is not, then I must believe that there is no plan or purpose for the universe and that more hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus. But the most remarkable thing he said was that there were eight prophecies concerning Jesus fulfilled in one day and the chances of that happening are one in ten raised to the seventeenth power. Now, a number raised to the 17th power means that a number is multiplied by itself 17 times. Let me tell you what that figure is like, that number is like. If you got that many, that number, you got that many silver dollars and spread them out over the state of Texas, it would completely cover the state of Texas two feet deep. And if you took one of those silver dollars, the man put it in a computer, figure it out, 
You put one of those silver dollars and you mark it and you blindfold a man, put that silver dollar on the state of Texas, anywhere in the state of Texas, blindfold the man and tell him to find that silver dollar, give him one chance to do it. The chances of him finding that one silver dollar two feet deep in the state of Texas are one in 10 raised to the 17th power. I ask you, which is easier, to believe God is or God isn't? For if I trace out the alternative to belief, if I trace it out to its logical conclusion, how do I explain design in a snowflake if there is no designer? And how do I explain the law of the universe that govern the universe if there's no lawgiver? I've not eliminated my problem, I've created a greater one. And if there is no lawgiver in the universe, there is no internal gyroscope, and we're like ships without a rudder because all action is the result of beliefs. I've got to believe. I'm like Student Kennedy who said, I must have God, for life's too dull without, too dull for naught save suicide. For I would murder somebody just for the sight of red blood. And I would drink myself blind, drunk, and see blue snakes if I couldn't look into the blue sky and hear God speaking in the silence of the stars. I've got to believe. And when Napoleon died, they found a letter on his person. It was written by his mother from her deathbed, and it said this, Napoleon, we probably won't meet again in this life, but we, meet, we will meet again it's too necessary not to be so. I believe God is and that Jesus is right about him. It's just too necessary not to be so. I can't stand the alternative. Second, when faith falters, commit yourself to the evidence. Now I want to talk about some evidences this morning. I'm not going to talk about the evidences that are in nature. You can find Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and, and, and find that. I want to talk about the evidences, three evidences that are incontrovertible. The first is the evidence of the changed life. Something happened to the men who had fellowship with Jesus Christ. What happened was that their lives were radically and revolutionary changed. Now, if I were to ask you this morning, it's okay for you to talk back if you want to. If I were to ask you, tell me of a person in history whose life was drastically changed, completely changed, who would you choose? Saul. Who said that? Great. Saul of Tarsus. Jew of the Jews. Pharisee of the Pharisees. He said, I caused the church to blaspheme God, and when they didn't, I either put them to death or I put them in prison. And one day on the, world, on the way to Damascus, he had this encounter with a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And a serious seeker would have to know what is the genius of the change of this man? What happened to him? Now when somebody tells you that, that they believe, you don't know whether they're lying or not because faith is intrinsically internal and personal. But there is something that you cannot deny, and that is the change that is visible in a person's life. The change of life that is visible. 
is incontrovertible. And a serious seeker says, what brought about this change? The Apostle Paul's answer was the answer of every other Christian. We met Jesus Christ. It wasn't that we began to accept a new set of rules or values. We met a person and he's, he changed our life. Gaston Foote tells about when he was in, the, in, the, in World War II, they docked for a little while of R&R on the Fiji Islands. The Fiji Islands were inhabited in, in ancient history with, by cannibals. And he said one day on the Fiji Islands, these little children came out from a school and they were entertaining us on our boat. And he said, when they started to leave, they formed a circle and they held hands and they sang a song they learned in Sunday school. What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. Now these ancestors may have been cannibals, but these children were not, and the way they explained it was is that Jesus came into their heart. Second evidence is the evidence of social revolution. Most social, sociologists and social historians will tell you that the anti-slavery movement, for the most part, emerged from the minds and hearts of unashamed evangelicals. And most of the trade union movement that, that spread across ancient Britain can be defined more in terms of John Wesley than Karl Marx. And what these sociologists are saying is this, is that when a person became, became acquainted with Jesus Christ, it changed for all time his opinion of other people. Third evidence is the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now Paul says that he has declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Now I had a, lot, I had a hard time, I must admit, when I was dealing with my own needs of Christ with regard to believing in the resurrection. Now I knew that these disciples believed that he was raised from the dead, but people believed, you know, back then believed a lot of things that were not true. But there was one, now watch this, there was one evidence or proof that was factored in to their belief that is unique to every other thing, that is, the change of their behavior following the resurrection. There was a time when these disciples were just a band, bedraggled band of, of weak and cowardly wimps that went home because their dream had evaporated and their bubble had burst. See them, watch them leaving from the cross and one of them turns to the other and says, say it ain't so, say it ain't so, but it was so. Jesus was dead. And their dreams vanished like a mirage until they went home. But there was another event that changed everything. No longer are they cowards cowering in the dark. They are bold as lions, courageous, and they preach and they teach and they heal and they pour out into the streets in praise and glorifying God. And it wasn't just a little flash in the pan of enthusiasm. It was an enthusiasm and excitement that lasted for a lifetime. And a serious seeker wants to know what caused this enduring 
permanent change. And they answered like this, we met Jesus alive. He was raised from the dead. Hallelujah, they said. And we talked to him and our hearts burned within us. And I know of no evidence in ancient history more compelling than that evidence. Come to the last thing, please, with me. Consider the alternative. Commit to the evidence. Consent to the belief. Now I use the word consent because, on purpose, because believing is a choice, really. It's a matter of the will. Now watch this. We all live in the same world. We, have all, we all have the same experiences and we all encounter the same things for the most part. And there are those who believe and there are those who do not believe. It's not so much a matter of the evidence. It's a matter of our interpretation that we bring to the evidence. It's a matter of choice. That's why it refers in the Bible to the evil heart of unbelief. Not the evil head of unbelief, the evil heart. For belief or unbelief is not a head problem, it's a heart problem. And that's why it rings through the Bible like a toll that a person doesn't believe because he refuses to believe. And that's why Jesus looked at Thomas and said, be believing, don't be unbelieving. It's a choice you make. Now I'm here to tell you this morning, I have taken my stand, I've chosen to believe that the it of Martin Luther's concern is true. I believe that. I take my stand. Like, like Billy Graham who said, there came a day when I got on my knees and I said, okay, Lord, from here on, I'm going to believe it's true. I'm not going to not doubt. I'm not going to believe it's not true anymore. Now you say, well, what if you're wrong? What if you come to the end of your life and you find that it is not true, the it of Martin Luther's query? Boy, a terrible trick has been played on you. Not so, my friend, for even if it's not true, I have the best life one could ever live. And I, because I take my stand on the it, I have lived, I am living, and I've lived most of my life already, and it's the best life one could possibly live. Now, there's a couple of things, and I'm saying it hurriedly and quit. In coming to the choice of believing, you need to avail yourself, you need to come to the light, that is, you need to come to the place and expose yourself to the contagion of believers. That's what happened to Thomas. He stayed away. And they came to him and they said, you come on in here where, where you can be exposed to the light, where there can be the contagion of belief. Let me see if I can illustrate like this. Adrian Rogers tells about the guy who was, whose wife he was counseling and he turned to the guy one day and said, are you a Christian? He said, no, I'm an atheist. He said, oh, you're an atheist. He said, an atheist is a person who knows everything. Could you say, you know everything? He said, oh, of course not. He, he thought it was insulting. He said, I don't know everything. I don't pretend to. He said, well, would it be a generous thing to say that you know half of the knowledge there is to know? He said, well, probably very generous. He said, well, then would you say that it could be possible that in this, era, in this body of knowledge that you do not know that God could exist there? He said, well, yes, I, I, I assume that could be correct. He said, well, he said, I guess I'm an agnostic. You, you just can't know. He said, well, yeah. He said, an agnostic is a doubter. He said, that's what I am, a doubter, a real serious doubter. He said, okay, are you an honest doubter or a dishonest doubter? 
A dishonest doubter is a person who doesn't know because he doesn't want to know. Like a, like a thief who doesn't want to, to find a policeman. But an honest doubter is a person who doesn't know, but he wants to know. He said, would you sign a commitment that you would become an honest doubter? That is, you would begin to seek to know what you don't know. He signed the commitment. He, got, he exposed, himself, exposed himself to the light. He came where people were believing. He got on his knees every night, just like the preacher suggested, and said, Lord, if you're really Lord, I want you to let me know. I want you to let me know intuitively or in revelation. And six months later, that man was a born-again Christian. Second thing, you need to understand that faith is progressive. Now, I didn't say salvation is progressive. But faith is. We go from faith to faith. James says in his first epistle, in his epistle, first chapter, that faith is perfected. That is, it grows to, to, to completion. We go from faith to faith. That is, when we believe what we can believe, we move on to believe that which we can't. For the condition of additional knowledge is obedience and faith to the present knowledge. So as I begin to believe, I begin to grow into belief. You understand what I'm saying? No artist ever begins to paint believing that it's going to be perfect, but they do it again and again and again. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, if anyone will come after me, if anyone will, will will to do the will of my Father, he'll know the truth, whether it be of God or man. What he meant by that was, is that you make a commitment to believe what you can believe, and the verification of that truth of God will come as the result of that commitment. Now watch carefully. I want to say this in, in conclusion. That's the word you're looking for, conclusion. I've been talking primarily, and there's two ways to come at this sermon. There, I've been talking primarily about believing when you have a problem not believing. I just want to speak a word to those of us today who are believers. But our faith is shaken. Let me bring you up to date. You remember my friend out in Seminole, Texas? He's the guy who, my, 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 my dear friend who, who went bankrupt in the oil bust. Do you remember him? He didn't take bankruptcy. He moved into a shack out of a beautiful home and trying to pay everybody back. He's the one whose daughter, who's this precious girl, the sweetest Christian person I've ever met, my youth minister, killed in a car wreck, left two small children. A month or so, you know, within that framework, he learned that his wife had cancer of the tongue. I talked to him about... A month ago, he told me that the doctor said for her to come home and die, that there's nothing else they could do for her medically. I'm going to bring you up to date. He learned that his younger daughter, he had two daughters, his younger daughter's husband was abusive, brutally abusive, and she was filing for divorce. And last Monday, last Tuesday or Wednesday, this girl whose name Anita, I baptized her, was on her way taking her children to school, had a wreck, and one of her children was killed. You tell me there's no Job in this life. And I think, you know, I talked to him, I tried to talk to him, he cried and I cried as I tried to talk to him on the phone the other day. That what he would say is this, I think he would say, I have chosen 
to keep on believing in the God whose plan for my life doesn't require my approval. And a man stood up in concert hall with a violin in his hand and he began to play and one of the strings broke. He usually carried some extra strings with him but not that night and so he took that broken string off and continued to play and a second string broke and a third string broke. And he held up that violin, had one string after he played the concert and said, on one string. There's some of you this morning who are on your last string, your, your last friend, your last chance, your last hope, your last dollar. And back behind the stage after that concert, that violinist said, I was determined not to quit. What happens when faith falters? I dig in and determine that I'm not going to disbelieve. For God's plan doesn't require my approval. we pray together. Our Father, I pray that there will be those who will stand today, take a stand on the side of the it. And regardless of the evidence that says God is not, help us to take a stand in faith. For I pray in Jesus' name. Now look here. I'm going to ask you this, this morning, those of you, just go ahead and leave me this here. Those of you who have not taken your stand with Christ, to get up out of your seat this morning and come here, it's like a line drawn in your life to say, I'm standing with Christ. I'm taking my stand there. I'm choosing to believe that the it is it. Maybe you need to come this morning and place your life and fellowship as one did in the early service in this church. Or to come in the recommitment of your life to faith, whatever God lays on your heart to do. That's what you should do. And it is your choice. I just pray, God, that you'll choose the right way. While we stand to sing, I invite you to come.